One weekend in February of 2016, while I'm out of town, I get a text message from a number I don't recognize. The text is a photo of Ignacio with his sister, Juliana, at his side. His hair has been trimmed close to his scalp and he's freshly shaven. He's looking straight into the camera with a crooked grin. Juliana has her hand on his shoulder and she's smiling. And there's another person next to Juliana who I recognize, Mexico's Consul General in San Diego. Juliana's flight from Ohio to San Diego was risky because she's undocumented. If she had been questioned by immigration officials along the way, she could have been deported, leaving her three U.S.-born children behind. So the consulate provided Juliana with a Mexican passport and an escort who traveled with her. They even had an attorney on standby, just in case. Some of the nursing assistants tell me later they believe Ignacio recognized Juliana. I want to believe that, too that Ignacio knows that he's no longer alone. I'm Joanne Farian. This is Chapter 6, the final chapter of Room 20, a new podcast from the L.A. Times Studios. It's about a man called 66 Garage, who lay in a hospital bed for 15 years, unidentified, and about how my search for his name and the circumstances that put him in a San Diego nursing home changed not just his life, but changed my life, too. There's a Latin word for self, ipsaity, that describes the essence of a person's being, a uniqueness as original as a snowflake. Is it possible for that essence to still exist, even if a person is so brain damaged that his body fails him in nearly every way? What if Ignacio is still in there, but he has no way of telling anyone? This is the question I still needed answered. I decided to ask one of the world's top neuroscientists, Adrian Owen. In February 2016, I spent a day in his lab at the Brain and Mind Institute at Western University in Ontario, Canada. Can I sit closer just so I get better audio? Um. Adrian is in his early 50s, British with a messy punk rock haircut. He's best known for scanning the brain of a vegetative patient named Kate back in 1997. And we showed Kate pictures of of friends and family and uh, brain lit up. Uh, as yours and mine would if we were looking at pictures of our friends and family. No one had done this before, scanned the brain of a person in a vegetative state to look for signs of consciousness. Doctors usually diagnose consciousness by asking patients to respond to commands, like squeeze a hand, move a finger, blink an eye. If a patient can't do those things, she's considered unresponsive or vegetative. After Adrian scanned Kate, He began his research into consciousness, and he was driven by the question, what if a person's mind still works, but she can't make her body do what she wants it to do? How would anyone ever know if she was still in there? Adrian has scanned hundreds of people since Kate, and he's learning something kind of shocking. About one in five people who are diagnosed as vegetative is actually fully conscious. Um, you know, I mean, the point is that your physical appearance, your the the, the behavior that you exhibit, um, upon which your clinical diagnosis is based, can be very misleading. Adrian's experiments work like this. Patients lie flat under an MRI machine, and Adrian gives them instructions. When you hear the word tennis, what I want you to do is to really imagine that you're playing a game of tennis. Just keep imagining playing tennis. If their brains are working normally, a specific region lights up when they picture themselves playing tennis. Next, they're told to imagine walking around their house. Another part of the brain lights up. 
Adrian then asks yes and no questions. To answer no, Adrian tells patients to imagine playing tennis. For yes, they're supposed to picture their house. Being able to respond yes and no, that can give patients who've lost control over their bodies some control over their lives. They can answer questions like, are you in pain? Do you want the TV on? Do you want the lights off? The nightmare scenario for me in these patients is imagining what it's like to have no control over any aspect of your environment. Every decision is made for you. That's the real nightmare, I think. And, you know, I think we can return some of that, some of that autonomy to, to our patients just by asking simple questions. So what if Ignacio is one of those people, like Kate, trapped in a body that doesn't work? Or maybe he's someplace in between, a kind of limbo. Adrian describes consciousness as a spectrum. On one end, you have no awareness, like when you're knocked out during surgery. When you wake up, there's no sense that time has passed, no dreams remembered, just a nothingness. The other end is right now, you listening, paying attention to my voice, understanding these words and their meaning, hearing the music in the background, Sometimes, people are diagnosed as minimally conscious. They move in and out of awareness, maybe for minutes or only seconds at a time. Take Ignacio's smile. Sometimes he'll smile, and that could be a reflex. Maybe he smiles at the wall. Maybe he smiles at a clock. Maybe he smiles at anything that's put in front of his face. Uh, Or maybe he just smiles at you. Adrian is working on a new study. He wants to scan 250 people who've been diagnosed as being in a vegetative state. Of course, I want him to come to the villa and scan Ignacio. I, I think you need to go there and scan everybody. <laughs> well, I would. I would if we could uh, sort of ethically and practically and, and, and logistically work it all out. But. Adrian tells me if he can't come, there's another neuroscientist, one in California, who might be able to help. I spend most of early 2016 away from the villa, out of town and working on other projects. When I finally go back... It's as though time has stopped for Ignacio. Juliana hasn't been able to visit again. The trip from Ohio is too expensive and too risky. The baby toys I brought Ignacio are stuffed into the bottom drawer of his nightstand. Papa is still here, in his bed by the door. He sleeps most of the time now. But Omar? The roommate in the middle bed? He's changing. He's put on weight. And when I visit... He's usually propped up in his bed watching television. One day, I hear Omar try to clear his throat, and it startles me. He has a tracheostomy tube in his throat, so he's not supposed to be able to do that. And I hear something else. He's making a deep humming sound. I go over to Omar's bed, and I ask him to make that sound for me. Ed Kirkpatrick, the head of the nursing home, had told me that Omar was mute, that his brain injury meant he'd never speak. But Ed was wrong. This is the sound of Omar declaring that he still exists. And suddenly, there's a little bit of hope in Room 20 enough to keep me coming here for the next six months. 
I do exactly what I did with Ignacio. I look for clues about Omar's life. How is it that he's never had a visitor in the six months he's been at the villa? I find the cop who was the first on the scene of Omar's accident. I find his old high school and a cousin who promises she'll visit, but never does. I find the house where he grew up, park in front, but never find the courage to knock on the door. What would I say? I realize, sitting in my car, that knowing Omar's life story before he came to Room 20 won't change what happened to him. Just like knowing what happened to Ignacio at that intersection in Southern California won't make him better. So I do the only thing that seems to make sense. I read to them. To Papa, to Omar, and to Ignacio. Stephen King short stories, The Old Man in the Sea, Little Prince, Tuesdays with Maury. I watch Ignacio's face as I read. He looks like a child about to fall asleep. I don't think he understands the words, although the sound of them seem to comfort him. But Omar does seem to understand, and he's learning to speak. Say hi. Hi. Yeah, do it again. Hi. Uh. Hi. You said hi. You know what word we have to work on? We have to work on no and yes. He starts to use his hands. I bring him giant markers and scrapbooks and realize he can read and write. I bring him a magnetic board with plastic letters, and he spells words. Yes and no. Those are the words we focus on. I ask the questions Adrian Owen, the neuroscientist, says can help people like Omar. Do you want the TV on? Yes or no. Are you in pain? Yes or no. As the weeks pass, the answer to that question becomes no. Omar's no longer in pain, and his voice is getting stronger. How do you feel? Uh, Good? Yeah? yeah? Are you happy you can talk? Yeah. And you tell, can you tell everyone what you want now? Yeah. Yeah? So can I bring you anything? What, do you want me to bring you something? Uh, Some, do you like comic books or magazines? Uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man! Do <gasps> you like Spider-Man? Yeah. All right, I will bring you Spider-Man comic books. One afternoon, a nursing assistant tells me she saw Omar dancing in his bed. She gives me the name of the song he was listening to, and I play it on my phone. Omar closes his eyes. He rolls his shoulders from side to side and brings his curled right hand to his chest. In this moment, it looks like he is somewhere else, in a club with a girl in a dream. The villa is full of what-ifs. If Omar hadn't been on the road in the dark. If Ignacio had been riding in the front of the truck instead of the back. If the boy, who looks no older than my son, had taken the bus to school instead of his car. If my mother had left the hospital emergency room with an antibiotic instead of a prescription for morphine. Wave hi. That's my mom. She's walking in the snow with my niece. <laughs> my most vivid memory of my mom from when I was a kid is her sitting at the kitchen table, her chin in her hand, locked in her own thoughts, drinking instant coffee and smoking a king-size Peter Jackson cigarette. 
oh, it was always sitting at the table having their cigarette and coffee and talking about the world, and I didn't even know what the heck was going on. That's my sister Lori Greenberg. I started smoking and drinking coffee with my mom back when I was a teenager. I quit in my 20s, but back then, smoking was a way to get close to my mom. She'd always been an enigma to me. She didn't look like the other mothers in my neighborhood. She had high cheekbones and an aquiline nose. Her eyes were green, her hair a dirty blonde. She was thin and stylish, even in black polyester pants from Kmart. When it comes to the night my mother died, Lori and I remember most of it the same way. Our mother was in the intensive care unit in a medically induced coma. What had happened, the sepsis became septic shock. So her body was shutting down because it was trying to fight it. We both remember the young doctor. He barely looked 30. He called us into a conference room. He told us our mother's organs were failing. Lori and I both remember the question he asked. He, he said, you know what, uh, what would your mom want? This is where my sister and I remember things differently. I remember sitting directly across from the doctor, feeling as though we were the only two people in the room. I didn't hesitate. I didn't ask a single question. I just answered. My mother wouldn't want to live on life support. She had said so in the letter she'd given me that morning on my sister's driveway two weeks before she died. So I answered the doctor's question. And my answer meant that my mother would be dead by morning. For years, I believed that I had killed her. I never told anyone that I felt this way. Guilty. I had trouble even admitting it to myself. But then everyone kept asking me, why was I spending so much time at the villa? It took me a while to figure it out. I was there because I was looking for evidence that I had made the right decision that night in the hospital. I was looking for signs of life in room 20 in case I had missed them in my mother. When I finally told my sister how I felt, I learned for the first time she felt guilty too. And that's when we both said, you know, we felt like we killed our mother. I never knew this. Even though for years after my mother's death, my sisters and I obsessed over her final days. We got her medical records and her autopsy report. We had this feeling that if we knew exactly what happened to our mother, we could somehow bring her back to life. Grief isn't rational. I still remember the first time I walked the halls of the villa. Ed told me not to look in the rooms, but of course I did. Nothing will erase the memory of the old woman with long gray hair, her mouth frozen open, her eyes staring vacantly into space. What if? Would this have been my mother all these years later? How long would I have waited for a miracle? I've spent many sleepless nights worrying about the impact the betting industry has on the environment. And the founders of Buffy have, too. So they decided to do something about it. Their latest product, The Breeze, is a comforter made entirely from 100% eucalyptus fiber that's softer than cotton and naturally soothes skin. I can tell you that The Breeze is unlike any other comforter I've owned. It manages to keep you comfortable without overheating, so you can say goodbye to night sweats. The Breeze actually regulates temperature. Its plant-based design is breathable, so it keeps you at a comfortable temperature in a way that polyester and downfilled comforters just can't. Plus, eucalyptus uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow, and is produced using recyclable, earth-friendly solvents. So why not choose bedding that's better for your sleep and the earth? If you're interested in The Breeze, you can try it for free in your own bed. And if you don't love it, return it at no cost. 
And for Room 20 listeners, we have an additional special offer. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter the code ROOM20. That's Buffy.co with code ROOM20 for $20 off your comforter. Did you know that 26 billion pounds of clothes are thrown out each year? And that 95% of them could have been recycled or reused? That's why I love ThreadUp, the world's largest online retail store. They allow you to buy and sell secondhand clothing, so they make it easy to clean out and restock your wardrobe affordably. When searching for new clothes, you can filter by almost anything, size, brand, style, or even condition. It's quick and easy to find what you love from all the top brands like Banana Republic, Ann Taylor, Lululemon, and more. Plus, some items are up to 90% off estimated retail. With fall just around the corner, I started looking for new sweaters to prep for chillier months. I was able to filter by my size and favorite brands to quickly find just what I was looking for, and many of the options for just under $10. For a limited time, ThreadUp is offering Room 20 listeners up to 50% off your first order when you go to threadup.com room20, and that's on top of the already low prices. That's T-H-R-E-D-U-P dot com slash room 20. Threadup.com slash room 20 for up to 50% off select items. Terms apply. Adrian Owen can't come to the villa to test Ignacio. There are too many bureaucratic hurdles. But Adrian leads me to someone who can, a researcher at UCLA. Her name is Caroline Schnackers. She's an expert at diagnosing consciousness using a new behavioral method that doesn't require an MRI or any other equipment. Her test isn't as precise as Adrian's scan, but it's cheaper and easier, and it's considered a leap forward in the diagnosis of consciousness. Caroline arrives at the villa on January 26, 2017, a Monday morning. Omar is making sounds, speaking in a kind of labored whisper. He's moving his legs and using his hands. He controls all three TVs in the room with his one Samsung remote, switching between action movies and reality television. Ignacio seems alert, too. He's kicking his right leg, moving his head from side to side, as he follows the comings and goings of the nursing assistants. Caroline is originally from Belgium. She's petite and exuberant. She travels on her own dime from L.A. to San Diego. I will ask you a few questions. Sometimes it could be hard, and that's okay if you cannot, you know, answer everything. It's fine. Try to just do whatever you can. With the help of a video interpreter, Caroline gives Ignacio a series of commands. Nacho, again, again. Try, try to stick out your tongue. Ignacio doesn't respond. Try to close your eyes a long time. He doesn't close his eyes either. Could you try to look at the cap? He doesn't look. Could you give me your name? What is your name? What is your name? And of course, Ignacio can't answer this question. He can't speak. Caroline tests Ignacio for more than an hour. She repeats various commands and writes notes in a small book. As I watch from the back of the room, I can see that Ignacio can't do most of the things Caroline asks him to do. Suddenly, the movements that once made me think he was improving seem so random. The kicking and the way he turns his head. He can't distinguish a cup from a pen. And then Caroline asks Ignacio to smile. I'm certain he can do this. Give me a beautiful big smile. I want to see your teeth. Okay. 
Ignacio smiles. But it's hard to tell whether he's smiling because he's been asked to or because he's mimicking the interpreter. She's smiling through the computer screen. Caroline tells the interpreter not to smile. Then she tells Ignacio again, smile. And he does. Very good. Very good again. Make me a big, big smile. But this time, Ignacio doesn't respond. Caroline and I walk into the hallway. Ed is there, too. Caroline looks at her notes and adds up numbers. Ignacio has scored 14 out of 23 on the Coma Recovery Scale Revised, the official name of this test. Caroline says she'd have to repeat the test many times to get an accurate picture of Ignacio's level of consciousness. But she says one thing is certain. Well, he's obviously not in a vegetative state. I'm not surprised by this news. It's what I believed all along from that very first smile. It's what anyone who spent time with Ignacio could see, what the nursing assistant saw, what his sister Juliana saw, what I saw when I began visiting Room 20. And now, a prominent scientist has confirmed what we all knew, that Ignacio exists. Caroline says Ignacio can hear, but he doesn't appear to understand language. He can see. He spontaneously looks at the people around him and follows their movements. He can reach for objects, like a cup, but he doesn't recognize what the object is for. And Ignacio, Caroline says, can feel pain. So each time he's suctioned, six or seven or eight times a day, that process that Ed once compared to waterboarding, Ignacio feels it. I ask Caroline whether Ignacio has emotions, whether he can feel happiness or sadness. When you are nearby him and smiling to him, he's smiling back to you. Um, but it, to, to tell you that he's realizing what's happening to him and he's sad about it, I cannot tell you that. Caroline thinks Ignacio probably lives only in the moment. When someone is with him, reacting to him, he reacts back. But when they leave the room, they no longer exist for him. This is the thing I hold on to, that time has no meaning for Ignacio, that he has no idea that he's been lying in a hospital bed for 17 years. If you Google 66 Garage, you'll find gas stations in Missouri and New Mexico and Florida, but none anywhere near the intersection of Evan Hughes Highway and Bowker Road in Southern California. That story I first heard about the name 66 Garage having something to do with the place the vehicles were towed after the crash, I now know that wasn't true. Just like so much of what I first heard about Ignacio's story isn't true. Here's what really happened that day. Ignacio is crammed into the back of a pickup truck with at least four other men. They're hiding under suitcases. They've just crossed into the U.S. from Mexico. At some point, Border Patrol starts chasing the pickup. The truck speeds through a stop sign and is broadsided by a car. The pickup flips. Some of the men run into the fields. Two are thrown into the grass with spinal injuries. Two land on the highway. One on the median, the other on the pavement. An hour and ten minutes later, there's a second accident at the intersection. That's what Dave from the county works office had told me when I first called to find out how many accidents occurred on that stretch of road in 1999. 
The second one happens when a woman is driving to work. She sees police and fire crews and a body lying on the median of the intersection. She's so distracted, she slammed into a truck in front of her. George Morris's truck. I can remember pretty clear. I, I came up and there was a guy laying in the medium. And while I was, while the highway patrolman was having me held there waiting for me to make the turn, um, another lady, not paying attention, ran in the back of me. George remembers something else. The only part of Ignacio's original story that is true. The Border Patrol chase. I remember it was some uh, farm workers got hit by, if I'm not mistaken, a truck carrying some illegals that were being chased by the Border Patrol. Ignacio's injuries are so severe that the emergency room in El Centro can't treat him. A few hours later, he's airlifted to a San Diego trauma center where he's given a name. That name will stay with them for nearly 16 years. 66 Garage. It turns out the hospital has the same system today that it did in 1999 for Jane or John Doe's. A hospital spokesperson explained it to me in an email like this. Basically, a theme is selected, like car or planets, and the numbers are randomly assigned to the theme names. Efforts are intentionally made to not have the name sound like it belongs to a real person. The names are intended to be temporary until the patient's identity can be confirmed through an interview, driver's license, or fingerprints. The email ends with, quote, The priority is saving the life and then identifying the person later. Ed Kirkpatrick is retired now. He splits his time between San Diego and his beach house in North Carolina. Ed tells me that on his last day at the villa, back in May 2017, he visited Room 20 to say goodbye to Ignacio. What I hope happens is that he continues to maintain his wellness and that he does not have to have a lingering, painful death. That's what I hope. For the first time, I tell Ed what led me to the villa back in 2014, that I was looking for closure in my mother's death. I thought I killed my mother for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking, maybe they could have saved her. I'm sorry you have that feeling, Mm -hmm. because you helped her. Mm-hmm. be in a much better situation. Mm-hmm. You absolutely did. Ed shares the story of his own mother's death. She had cancer, and she didn't want to go through chemotherapy. She chose hospice instead. She was on morphine the night she died. I remember us leaving to go get something to eat, and I told the nurse, I said, it's okay if you, if you up that a little bit more, because I think she's still uncomfortable. Then we got a call about two hours later that she passed. I've always sensed that Ed felt conflicted in his role at the villa. His job was to keep people alive, stop them from getting bed sores or infections, the things that eventually kill people on life support. But he also recognized the suffering involved in prolonging their lives, not just the residents' suffering, but the families' too. Why do we put people through this? Why do we do this to people? Why is, it, why is it so hard for us to 
let go. And of course, the question always is, is when is the time when you say let go? The number of men, women, and children on life support in California nursing homes keeps going up. Back in 2014, when I first reported on so-called ment farms, there were fewer than 4,000. Last time I checked, a few months ago, there were more than 4,200. In early 2017, after being away from the villa for a month, the first thing I notice in room 20 are two empty beds. The blankets are pulled taut as though no one has slept in them. Ignacio is asleep in his corner of the room. I rush into the hallway and I ask the first nursing assistant I see, what happened to Papa and to Omar? Papa died, she says, a couple weeks ago. And Omar? He's on the other side of the villa, she tells me. I find Omar in room nine. He's made it out of the life support unit. He's in the villa's rehab section now. There's no hiss here, no oxygen machines. The tracheostomy tube has been removed from his throat. A bandage marks the hole. Omar asks me where I've been. His voice is weak but clear. Eventually, some of my friends chip in to buy him an iPad, and he's on Facebook now. The first thing he types? Hello, beautiful people. He even finds some of his family on Facebook, siblings he hasn't seen in years. In the summer of 2018, he has his first visitor, his older sister. I was there that day she arrived. I found you. <laughs> I told you I was going to come soon, right? <laughs> Look, have bigger hands than I do. I have little hands. <laughs> that miracle I kept hoping for didn't happen for Ignacio, but it did for Omar. A few weeks before writing this final chapter of Room 20, I reread Ignacio's consciousness evaluation, the one the researcher from UCLA did. I'm surprised by how differently I interpret it now than I did then. It says Ignacio is conscious some of the time. There's no doubt about that. But it also says, quote, Functional or intentional communication has not been observed. We nevertheless noted that the patient smiles to his surroundings, familiar or not. In other words, Ignacio smiles at everyone and everything. I had misinterpreted his smile from the beginning. I had believed what I wanted to believe in that moment when he first smiled at me nearly four years ago. Even though my earlier reporting was over, I wasn't ready to leave the villa. I took Ignacio's smile as a reason to stay. On one of my last visits to Room 20, Ignacio looks small in his green t-shirt and diaper. I open the patio door to let in the sunlight and fresh air. I turn the radio on to a Spanish music channel and pull my folding chair next to the side of his bed. I hold his hand. I slowly enunciate the syllables in my name. At this point, I know it's pointless, but I like that it makes him smile. This show was reported and executive produced by me, your host, Joanne Farian. My senior editor was Susan White. Room 20 was produced by LA Times Studios' Clint Schaff and Camila Victoriano, with production support from Neon Hum Media. 
Special thanks to Sam Tari and Andy Trimlett for production and research help during my reporting. To discover more about the story, go to latimes.com slash room 20. 